given you know my dedication to this, it still blows my mind that any of them make it back. Yeah, yeah. It is. It seems impossible. It seems impossible for a fish to undergo. 1,200 river miles, two years in the ocean, 16 dam crossings, yeah. and all of the obstacles in between to make it back to the gravel bed that they were born in and spawn and start it over. Yep. But the fact that they're still able to do it at all is... Miraculous. It's miraculous. Yeah. It's magic. Yeah. These are stories of outdoor adventure and expert advice from folks with calloused hands. I'm James Nash, and this is the Six Ranch Podcast. A hot drink can become cool in two primary ways, through conduction and convection. Conduction occurs when two objects touch each other. Imagine holding a piece of ice. Before long, your fingers are cold and the ice begins to melt. That's conduction. Convection occurs when a gas or liquid moves from being different temperatures. When you heat water over a stove, the warm water moves up and the cool water moves down. That's what you're seeing when water boils, and that's convection. A stainless vacuum bottle prevents conduction from occurring by creating a void between the walls of the bottle, thermos, or cup and the outside air. It prevents convection by keeping all the liquid inside at the same temperature. That's how a Stanley product keeps your cold drink cold and your hot drink hot. And they've been doing it for 110 years. The Six Ranch Podcast is brought to you by Stanley 1913, and you can check out their new and classic line of products at stanley1913.com. Okay, take me, take me through a little story time, Kyle. If you are a, a steelhead egg and you get laid uh, in a gravel bar in the Wallowa River on the Six Ranch... A month from now, you're 600 river miles exactly from the Pacific Ocean. What's your life going to be like? It's a pretty tough life. 1% small to adult ratio like we talked about earlier. You know, your chances of making it back as an adult are extremely low. So if you have 99 siblings, all of them die. Right. Okay. You're the lucky one. You're the lucky one. So let's just assume you're going to be one of the ones that makes it back. So just kind of take me through it. Yeah, so you'll you'll spend your first one to two years in freshwater. Yep, hanging out on Six Ranch. Yep, beautiful views. Mm-hmm. Uh, lots of wildlife. Yep, and uh, then you get a you get a an itch, crazy itch, and you start thinking about heading out to the ocean. And that's that's where most of your brothers and sisters are going to lose it. So, are you going to point your head downstream and just go for it? Negative. I mean, so historically, you would have gotten flushed out with spring freshet or you know, when you come up out of the gravel, there's plenty of water moving out towards the ocean. And so you just tuck your head up, face upstream and get flushed out. All you got to do is just maintain your, your, uh, your equilibrium and, you know. But is that after that one to two years? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, you know, with this uh, river restoration project that we did here, we put in a lot of um, root wads that mm-hmm. are, you know, connected to a big tree that's buried into the bank. Right. And those root wads are in the water and that provides a lot of really valuable space for those baby fish to hang out in and escape predators. Um, There's less current right there. There's lots of detritus and, you know, small insects and things for them to eat. So, you know, after that one year or two year cycle, you know, the snow starts to melt, rivers come up. Now we're heading to the ocean, but we're swimming, swimming backwards. Right. I think a lot of people don't know that if, um, if you pull a fish backwards in the current that you'll drown them, that they can only diffuse oxygen over their gills in one direction. Right. So they got to face upstream. Right. Very important. Okay. So now we're going down the Wallawa, hoping to not get eaten by a river otter or a bull trout. Then we hit the Grand Ronde. What happens there? Uh, same thing. Same thing. Yeah. <laughs> more problems. More, more of the same. More and more of your siblings are getting smoked by predators. Well, yeah. I mean, 
you know, but but less so than when you when the real trouble hits when you get to the snake. So you, you get know. to the snake. So we go down the Grand Ronde. We hit the snake right at Rogersburg or Heller Bar, and there's a little bit of a riffle right there, and it's kind of an exciting spot. And lots of boats, lots of people trying to catch fish, but we're introducing some new predators um, because the temperature just changed radically, right? Right. So what are some of those new predators that they're dealing with, you know, due to an altered state of, you know, that body of water? You got all kinds of critters. So you got smallmouth bass, walleye. Yeah. Plus the temperature that, you know, the more, the warmer it is, the more energy you're expending to, uh, you know, just keep your, keep your cool in the summertime or in the spring. And then in just a couple miles, there's no more current. Right. So you got to turn around and start swimming, which is expending more energy. And is not how they're hardwired. Right. Like that's not in their, their DNA is in their DNA. Yeah. 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 So pretty disorienting, you know, Mm -hmm. coming from a a freshwater, cold, cold water environment where you're getting flushed out to all of a sudden you end up in this bathtub that's been baking in the sun. Right. It's warmer than it should be. And it's loaded with stuff that wants to kill you. Okay. Um, Okay. But we figured it out. We're going to adjust, you know, we're an adaptable species and we're heading out towards, uh, towards the ocean now. Um, First obstacle. Uh, Lower Granite Dam. Lower Granite Dam. Yeah. Okay. So run of the river. It's not a huge, you know, it's not a huge, uh, high head dam like some of them yep. uh, in our region, but it is, uh, you know, a big nasty turbine that wants to chew you up and make you into yeah. fish food. Yeah. So, uh, what's the survivability like as they cross that dam on the way right. out? So that's a, that's a figure that's out there in the world a lot. You'll hear a lot of people say it's 97% survival over the dams. Okay. Problem being that that's, that's just the concrete structure. Right. That's just from when you and your brothers and sisters start at the top of the dam and either go over the, through the turbine or, or over the top of the dam, you know, okay. through the, through the floodgates. And, uh, so there's 3% of your brothers and sisters right there, just in that one fall. Okay. And you got seven more between you and the ocean. So that's a bad deal. Okay. But what, what gets people a little bit confused about this is from one side of the concrete to the other, we lose three out of the 100 fish. Correct. So we get to the other side. Now we've got another pool to navigate. Right. So we're swimming downstream again, not normal. What's the next obstacle? Uh, little goose dam. Little goose dam. Mm-hmm. Same thing. Same thing. About 97%. Mm-hmm. Okay. So we just lost three more. Mm-hmm. Then what happens? Same thing. Same thing. Another big pool of warm water. It's been baking in the sun. Yeah. You get to uh, Lower Monumental Dam. More, more and more predators as we go, too. Yep, yep. Because the water's getting warmer. Yep. And then... Start mixing in avian predators. You know, yep. you got cormorants trying to eat you, and yep. then you got, you know, not quite pinnipeds yet, but those are waiting for you in a little bit, so... Okay, so we keep on going. What's the next dam? Uh, we made it through Lower Monumental, so we're at Ice Harbor. Ice Harbor. Last one before you hit the Columbia. Yep. Uh, we're losing, losing again. Yep. About 3% again. Losing all the way down. Okay. Uh, I don't, my math is starting to compound because, you know, we, we, we started with a hundred fish and we lost three of them, but you know, if we're losing 3% of 97 fish, that's just at the dams, James. So you got to also, you got to factor in all the fish that got eaten by all those predators in the reservoirs before the dam. So do we have figures in like how many of these fish are dying in the pools? Uh, so by the time they get over. Uh, through the snake system, it's about 60% of your brothers and sisters. And I'd have to double check that figure, but it's somewhere in that neighborhood. 65% of your brothers and sisters are gone. Okay. So now there's 35 or 40 of you left and you hit the Columbia. Right. Are all of your troubles over? No, same story. Same story. Yeah. Again, all the way down the Columbia. Yep. So you got McNary there and then, uh, on down this, on down the line before you make it over Bonneville. And then you got a free shot to the ocean. Okay. So we've gone through eight dams right and now we're out in the ocean and how much time do we need to spend in the ocean uh, one to two years up to five you okay. know, real big fish that are coming back less so in the snake system but most most of those snake fish are one to two year old okay. one, one to two salt fish so one to two years in the ocean lots of problems out More there stuff trying to eat yeah you, there's a lot of stuff in the ocean that's trying to kill you yep. and you know an incredibly dangerous part of this journey is the lower columbia Mm-hmm. Um, just a tremendous number of predators that are really benefiting from 
these anadromous fish that are starting up high in the watersheds and coming out. Right. Okay. But you're a survivor. You made it. Okay. Two years in the ocean. And uh, now you decide to come home. Yeah, you get that same crazy itch to come back to the same place, that same riffle you were you were spawning. You're heading back to the Six Ranch. Start your old family at the yeah. Six Ranch, yep. Okay, so what's that look like? Uh, same thing in reverse, right? So you're swimming up through buoy 10 with a bunch of hooks in the water trying yeah. to yank you out. Now you've got a bunch of recreational fishermen mm-hmm. that are trying to kill you. Uh, what about gill nets? Is that a thing? It is. Okay. Who's, who's running gill nets? Uh, both... Uh, tribal tribal interests and you know white man yep so there's there's commercial guild netting as well as tribal guild netting how much of the fish run that's returning is allocated to tribes uh 50 percent 50 percent so you know let's say let's be generous and say there's 40 of you that made it to the ocean is that is that correct or am i missing something there there's uh, 40 of you that made it to the columbia right okay yeah and so f- even fewer you know so Really, there's one. You're the only one coming back out of your hundred brothers and sisters. You're the only one that came back as an adult. Well, that's well, not entirely true. No. So some of you are going to die on the way back. Yeah. So yeah. there's, you know, there's a few of you that are coming back up through the system, but you're getting caught in gill nets. You're getting right. killed by sea right. lions. The majority of the mortality though is in that juvenile life stage. Okay. So m- most of them are dying on their way out, and then your survival on the way back is much much improved, but still pretty hairy. So you've, now you've got eight dam crossings, lots of hazards along the way, 600 miles upriver, right. and then you make it back to that same gravel bar that you were born in on the Sixth Ranch. Yep. And you hopefully find a mate that also made it back. Right. And Which is a critical part of the yeah. equation. You yeah, know? yeah. So that's one thing that we skip over in human intervention is that, that natural selection stage. Where you're not just you're not just mating with any fish that swims up, especially if you're the female. She's kind of the one that gets to decide, and so she's looking for the biggest, strongest buck she can find to reproduce with. And that's part of why wild fish are just really good survivors, mm. is because they're you know they're tuned over hundreds, if not thousands, of years to survive in their particular watershed. Sure. And along the way, John, you're out there in the river trying to get them to eat part of a chicken. Yeah. Uh, You know, there's a few things like the tidal estuary is another place that they get crushed. What is a tidal estuary? So where the uh, rivers are emptying into the ocean um, and it's kind of half salt, half fresh water. There's a lot of predators there. And a lot of the juvenile fish will go out there and stay there for months at a time before they actually head out into the ocean. So steelhead have a tremendously diverse life history so that's another place where a huge amount of loss takes place is in the estuaries but yeah so we go and fish when the fish are coming back when the steelhead are coming back and we go out and we try to catch them and we throw big hunks of feathers at them hoping that they're gonna eat some kind of shrimp that they tried to eat out in the ocean so as the as the owner of alpine archery and fly you're selling fly fishing gear and you're also an angler yourself. Is your interest in making sure that they're steelhead returning um, primarily in their recreational and economical value to you? I mean, I, I would be lying if I said that wasn't a concern. Right. Right. But is that the only reason? No, because I fished long before uh, I owned the store. And, you know, we live here. Because a beautiful place. I mean, Union and Malawa County are some of the prettiest places in all of Oregon. And the fish have a tremendous value historically, not just monetarily, but historically to the region, um, the tribes here in the area, that was a massive part of their culture. And so there's a historic value to them. Um, there's a perceived, maybe an emotional value as far as we love to see those fish come back. I don't know if you've ever done it, but, um, cutting the barb off a hook and just going out and swinging a fly or fishing something without a hook just to see if there's a fish there. And I I think it's preserving not just a lifestyle, but also the 
area, the geography, the interesting nature of the place that we live and making sure that is available for future generations, being stewards of the land, making sure that the resources are not depleted or run out. You know, we want renewable things here. We want ongoing things. Um, you know, I've been thinking a lot personally about thinking generationally and getting rid of a consumer mindset and being more of a producer and producing things that are going to last well beyond me mm-hmm. and trying to get rid of a consumer mentality in my own life. And this is just another part of that. And that kind of sounds weird coming from a guy who owns a retail store that we're trying to get rid of a <laughs> consumer mentality, but that's a lot of the things that I've been thinking about. Yeah. Would you advocate for salmon and steelhead and trout um, and whitefish, obviously, if if you weren't allowed to fish for them and your customers weren't either? Absolutely. Because it goes far beyond just the recreational portion of it. Um, fish play a tremendous part in the ecosystem and they provide nutrients to the ground um, when they die. Let's talk about that. What what are marine drive nutrients? So when Chinook spawn and they die on the riverbank, the decomposition from their bodies essentially is put into the ground, into the water, and it feeds that ecosystem. That's why a lot of times the riparian areas are so lush along riverbanks. And I mean, I guess comparing it to compost, like we all compost things and then use it to fertilize our gardens. Well, fish dying on the riverbank does that naturally. Right. I think, I think it's something like 140 species are in some way linked to uh, snake river, salmon, and steelhead. Yeah. So everything from, you know, bears to eagles to osprey. Uh, you know, there's studies in Alaska where they find uh, marine drive nitrogen because you can tell it from marine nitrogen from terrestrial nitrogen. They find it in the tops of trees that are right, in, in 100 feet tops. tall. Yeah. So, you know, it's critical and something that we've lost as a as an ecosystem is that, that influx of marine drive nutrients coming back every year. And one of the magical things about it is that that little tiny fish, you know, went out the 600 miles, got big off of other nutrients in the ocean, and then brought them back. Right. So it's a way to get nutrients from the ocean 600 miles inland and a lot farther for some anadromous fish in right. some places. But how else am I going to get nutrients from shrimp from, right. you know, it's the, a pretty beautiful the, from system. the coast of Argentina. Right to come back up here to the six ranch and then, you know, dissolve into the soil and benefit this yep. multitude of species. And even beyond like the large charismatic species that you're describing to the microbiome of, of that river and, and the river bank and everything. Yep. It's, it's really important. Yep. And it wasn't just historically a onesie twosie type situation. We're talking about 10 million fish, right? Yeah. 10 come, to 16 million in snake basin. Yeah. Is a historic projection. And you, you said something that I want to expand on because I'm a hunter and angler. Mm-hmm. You know, they're, 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 that sense of magic is something that I don't think I can explain to somebody that doesn't hunt or fish. Mm. Like being in a sterile environment where there aren't deer or elk or, or billy goats or, you know, bighorn sheep feels different to me in my soul. And the same thing is true for salmon and steelhead. You know, I, I referenced Love in the Grand Ron. I'm, I'm, you know, I don't spend a ton of time out here, but that place had such a huge impact on my person because it's so layered with fish and wildlife. I mean, we had billy goats coming into camp at night and we caught a 22 inch rainbow. Like I took my four year old kid on his first river trip on that mine of Detroit. I mean, it's just an incredible place and it, it, with every one of those species that's lost because of, you know, human malfeasance or whatever it is like that place loses a little bit of magic and that might sound woo woo and shishi, but it's, that's how I feel. And, you know, I think a lot of people that hunt fish maybe feel that way too. And people that don't, you know, and so you don't even have to interact with those species to get that, that sense of wonder and that sense of magic out of a place when there's fish and wildlife there. So that's the good news. Right. Who came out with this 
estimate that the extinction horizon for these species is five to 10 years out? Uh, I mean, so five to 10 years is a, an aggressive timeline, but it's the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration. Okay. No fisheries. No fisheries. Mm-hmm. Um, the people that, you know, predict El Nino, La Nina, um, the Center for Weather Prediction for the entire country. The world's best scientists. Yeah, Let's the, just the world's best scientists yeah. are, are saying that this isn't like, this isn't the next generation's problem. This is right now. Right. So it's, it goes back to that small to adult ratio. It's that, that's really the golden part of the equation, SARs. Smolt being baby, baby. fish. Yeah. Yep. And so basically you need a 2% smolt to adult ratio. You can think of it like two fish spawning. You need 2% return to keep that population stable. Okay. That, that would be assuming that they have a hundred eggs. Um, but they don't. Well, it's, they it's more complicated. Yeah. You know, if a steelhead puts out what, you know, I'm not sure what a steelhead is, three or 4,000 and a Chinook's like five or 6,000 eggs. Right. But the way the math shakes out, it just conveniently works out that you need 2% small to adult returns yep. to, to maintain viability. Yeah. And so we're at less than 1% in most of the snake basin, whereas downstream systems like the Yakima and the John Day are usually, you know, twice that or three times that, three or 4%. So while those populations are doing good, Snake population is decreasing by a factor of 50% genetically every year. And around 2014, when we had record high runs here, we were knocking on that 4% number. Right. But but all those downstream systems were doing, what did Jeff say, like 8 to 10%? Yeah, yeah 6 to 10. Yeah, significantly 10. better. Okay. So what is the biggest thing that could be done to improve the number of smolt that return? Right. So we we work a lot with uh, the Nez Perce tribe in American Rivers. And so Shannon Wheeler, the vice chair of the tribe, says we've played with all the dials. You know, he's famous for saying we've, we've turned a lot of dials. We've, we've invested $24 billion in habitat and in hatcheries. None of that stuff's worked. The biggest dial we've got to turn is removing the lower four snake river dams. Okay. So there's, there's lower snake dams. There's middle snake dams. Um, the middle snake dams do not have fish passage, right? Correct. Yep. And not a lot of habitat value up above, you know, so that's why really the conversation is focused on those four is because when you turn off the Columbia at Tri-Cities and head up the snake, you pass the salmon, you pass the Grand Ron, you pass what is projected to be by 2080 with climate change in effect, 65% of the salmon and steelhead habitat in the lower 48 states. Like okay. the, the beating heart of salmon and steelhead country is between you know, uh, Hell's Canyon Dam and Lower Granite Dam. Got it. Uh, which is us. Which is you. Yeah. Which is that lucky fish that got to start its life on Six Ranch. Um, gosh, it's it's mind blowing to me still. Uh, even though I've dedicated so much time and effort and resources, you know, just flat out, we gave up the best pasture on the ranch for a decade to be able to improve fish habitat here in doing one of these, you know, river restoration projects where we created a new river channel. Given, you know, my dedication to this, it still blows my mind that any of them make it back. Yeah. Yeah. It is, it seems impossible. It seems impossible for a fish to undergo 1,200 river miles, two years in the ocean, 16 dam crossings. Yeah. And all of the obstacles in between to make it back to the gravel bed that they were born in and spawn and start it over. Yep. But the fact that they're still able to do it at all is miraculous. It's miraculous. Yeah. It's magic. Yeah. My buddy, um, for, for folks that aren't familiar with a guy named Shane Anderson, he's got a new film out called uh, the lost salmon and it's mm-hmm. about spring Chinook and the plight that they're in. And it focuses a lot on snake river dams, but I'd heard, highly encourage folks to check that out. You can see it for free online. It's okay. on PBS, but he calls those fish. The reason I bring this up is because he, there's a biologist in that film that calls salmon, uh, mountain mountaineers and mariners. Mm. And I think that's so like kind of romantic, kind of cheesy, but like so true that yeah. they are absolute gangsters when it comes to surviving everything the world has to throw at them. Right. Uh, there will be a link to that in the podcast description. If Great. you guys want want something easy, just look at the podcast description, and one of the links that uh, is there will be to to that video. Okay, so the the dams that you're talking about removing are, 
Ice Harbor, Monumental. Little Goose and little, Lower Granite. Little Goose and Lower Granite. It's between Tri-Cities and Lewiston, basically. What would happen, um, like there's a lot of there's a lot of people that depend upon sure. those dams and, and what they provide. It's a lot of energy. It's transport for, what did we say, a couple million bushels of wheat. It's about two million, yep. There's, there's a lot there. Mm-hmm. So if we just pull them out... Can we ever replace that infrastructure again? Yeah, I mean, if you pulled them out now, you'd screw over a lot of people is what you're getting at. Yeah. You know, and that's totally true. And that, that for 20 years, we've been talking about these dam removal, these dams coming out. When uh, were they put in? Uh, between 60, the last one went in 75. Okay. Lower Monumental was finished in 1975. Gotcha. So they've been there almost 50 years, which is conveniently their, their useful life, lifespan. Oh, it is. Yeah. So we've got turbines that are aging out. We've got infrastructure that needs replaced. And if they disappeared right now, that would be, I mean, it'd be a disaster. What are locks? Locks are the navigation structure. So, you know, if you, if you envision a a dam in your mind on the upstream side, you have a higher water level than the downstream side. Sure. If you're a barge coming up the Snake River, you park in a lock, it closes behind you. And then slowly the water level fills up until you're at the upstream gradient. And then that opens and you can continue on your way upstream. That seems like a tremendous structure, like an elevator that can lift hundreds of thousands of tons. Yep. Yeah. 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 And all that stuff actually would stay. Uh, you know, if if we had an act of Congress that deauthorized these four dams, the concrete portions would stay in place and the earthen portions, which are off to the side, which are just ba- basically a big berm, is what would be removed. So you okay. still have all the infrastructure. If, you know, if something went diabolically wrong in the future, you could and theoretically put the dam back in place. Okay. Well, that's nice that it's not like a, you know, all or all or nothing thing that right. you could do this on a somewhat experimental basis. And if you realized that this was Pandora's box or was an unforeseen consequence, that you could you could go back and get after it again. Because, frankly, I don't remember dams being built in rivers in my lifetime at all. You know, right. that that was really a a fifties through seventies thing that all these major dams, incredible feats of engineering and labor occurred throughout the country. And, and a lot of good has come from it. Right. I, th- I think that's worth pointing out that a tremendous amount of good has come from these dams, but there's been some problems too. The same thing happened with the Wallowa River here on the Six Ranch. You know, the river was straightened with heavy equipment that came home from World War II, and that allowed for transport in and out of the the city centers here, you know, right through the middle of the ranch. So we could have a highway, we could have railroad tracks, you know, we could develop this critical infrastructure for people to navigate through here, but it also destroyed a bunch of fish habitat. But with, you know, the engineering that we have today, we're able to create that habitat again and still keep the highway and railroad tracks. And it, it worked great. And that's a little bit about what we're talking about with these dam removals. Like we can keep some of the infrastructure in place um, in case it's needed, but we can also modify it by removing the earthen portion to allow for better fish passage. So we're not losing 3% of that population every time they cross the dam. Right. Yep. And the other critical part, James, which I have a feeling you're probably going to get to next is replacing the services that the dams provide. Yeah. How do you do that? So, you know, all credit to Mike Simpson, congressman out of Idaho, um, for getting the conversation started. He introduced a a concept paper a couple of years ago that laid out kind of, you know, the kitchen sink on the table, everything from recreational boat owners being compensated for the loss of their recreational opportunity to the cost of moving from barge to to rail and truck for the, the downstream wheat. Uh, commodities that are shipped to port. Okay. Um, you know, so it's, it's, it's not an easy thing, but it is feasible to replace the transportation for downstream crops, uh, about a thousand average megawatts of power, which is about 4% of the BPA portfolio on the, on the whole. So, you know, it's significant, but not irreplaceable amount of power and then irrigation for a number of irrigators and well users uh, downstream right out of Tri-Cities in the, the Sacagawea pool, which is behind Ice Harbor Dam. That seems like a super easy fix. We're talking about changing the water level by about 100 feet. Right. So you just need a bigger pump, bigger generator, and an extra 100 feet of pipe, and you can still draw water out of that river system to be able to irrigate. That yeah. doesn't seem that, that hard to well, me. Well, you know, I think part of, part of the work I really enjoyed, you know, speaking about what I'm doing in American Rivers as the Snake River director is that I, I'm not in a position to solve that problem. 
and I, you know, I am fully aware that there are a lot smarter people than me that use those pipes and those pumps every single day. And we need those folks at the table to craft solutions that work for their communities. This cannot be a campaign of, you know, West side, Portland, Seattle folks telling Kennewick, Tri-Cities, Wallowa enterprise what to do. And so what we're working on and why we're here today is to have conversations with folks that, that are impacted by dam removal and find out what their problems are so that we can solve them. Yeah. So sitting around the table this morning, we had cattle ranchers, we had outfitters, fly shop owners, we had state biologists, former fish and wildlife commissioner, an old guy who really likes mules. Uh, you know, we <laughs> legendary had, old guy likes mules. Yeah. I don't know. Lowercase <laughs> L. Uh, no, it was a, it was a good group of, of thinkers to tease at this problem Mm -hmm. and, and to come up with, you know, reasons that it wouldn't work, reasons that it shouldn't go, um, reasons that it should work, that it should go. I love that. You know, I, I think that a really critical phase in developing any kind of plan and John, you may, may or may not agree with this with your military background is the first thing you do with any kind of a plan is to hate it um, and just hate it to pieces and then what's left is so resilient that you can build off of it. Yeah, so the first thing that we did when a plan was put together is destroy it, tear it apart, um, find every weak spot in it. And then what's left, then you build off of that, right? Right. So essentially what you said. And, and I think that works everywhere is you, you got you to gotta tear things apart and strip away the bad and all of this there's an end goal in mind and at this point it's developing a roadmap that is usable to get the goal accomplished but doesn't kyle talked about screwing people over if we pull the dams out right now it's going to screw a bunch of people over and that's true um, but nobody wants to do that right so how which, do is, we... which is unusual for this type of project. Right. Typically, when, when there's some type of environmental project, it's like, hey, sorry, but we care more about this wildlife species than we do about you or your business or, or the things that are important to you. Like, this wildlife comes first. Right. And the way people have approached this is really not that. It's like, hey, how can we make everybody whole? And... And still make this work so that we don't lose these species forever in like five to ten years. Right. One of the things that I appreciated about the meeting this morning was that there are differences of opinions there, right? Everybody kind of was coming from their own different perspective. And there was no hurt feelings. Like we could disagree on things. We could argue about things. And it wasn't. Well, I didn't get my way, so I'm leaving the table. Right. You know, and that's a lot of what's wrong with, in my opinion, what's wrong with the world right now is if somebody doesn't get their way, they're going to take their ball and go home. And we see that in politics and we see that in everyday life. And people have lost the ability to argue. They've lost the ability to disagree. They've lost the ability to just sit down and talk with somebody um, it's the social media world. Oh, you're ranting now. Yeah, <laughs> sure am. And I mean, I talked with your mom about this the other day when she came into the store and I love it because people can disagree and, and still talk and still resolve things. And that was the best part about the meeting this morning. And, and I think that is the map forward. Yeah. I think the danger, though, is that if you don't do what we did this morning, it ends up being a, a judge in Portland that makes a decision for your community. We're a judge anywhere. Right. You know, like. Well, that, I say that because that's yeah. the district that's that's Judge Redden and a couple other judges are the ones that have heard the case and ruled in favor of the plaintiffs. Yeah. You know, it's not legally, this is not a good position to be in for pro dam folks. Like, we need to do stuff to recover Snake River species. Right. Salmon and steelhead species. And it's, it's a question of when it's going to come to somebody making a decision that the dams have to go. Or we can come together as a group of directly impacted stakeholders and find solutions that maybe not everybody wins, but at least you have your say and at least you get to advocate for your community and what, you know, 
what what you need. Well, and to your point, a judge in Portland deciding the livelihood of you said, let's say three hundred employees that work on the Snake River dams, and if I worked on the Snake River dams and some judge in Portland made a decision that cost me my livelihood because he wanted to save some fish. Yeah. Oh, I'd be mad. Right. Right. So yeah. And, and justifiably so. Yeah. It's, it's an upsetting situation. And even to go to that guy and be like, look, I know that this job means everything to you and your family. I want to find something else for you to do that gives you the same amount of money gives you security for your family, but it can't be this. That is still hard. That is still very hard. If somebody came to me and, and tried to exchange what I'm doing, you know, and I don't know what, what it's like to work on a dam. You know, Maybe those guys hate their lives, but I'm just assuming that there's people that go to work and love it, and they think that it's awesome, that they're able to take you know, one of the great rivers of the world and bring it to heel to provide power and transportation and energy and, and commerce to this large swath of people. And like three out of a hundred fish died. Like, so what, you know, I'm doing a lot of good here. I, I think that there's probably that person at the dam. And then to say, Hey, you know, I've got another job for you. It's not the same, but it's the same money. Like that's still a bitter pill to swallow for some of those people. So I have a friend, customer, came in to the store on Friday to pick up his new bow. And, you know, so we're just talking about things, how things are going in his life and whatever. Um, he's a former Marine, so he'll appreciate that. Yep. And he works on the dams. Mm. Works on Ice Harbor. And his job is repairing fish passage. Okay. Fish ladders. That's what he works on. Okay. I'm doing my part to... What do, what do I answer that guy? Because he's doing his part to make sure that fish are getting through mm-hmm. and fish are surviving. And he's like, you're for taking my job away. Now we're still friends. We talk and discuss. And, you know, um, and I think that's important is that we can talk and discuss. That's a hard situation for me is he's my friend. He's my customer. Mm-hmm. He's trusting me with his money. You both care about the same things, yeah. Just in different ways, yeah. And there's yeah. going to be winners and losers. Like I don't mean to be Pollyanna, Mister Nonprofit guy over here, saying you know everybody's going to win and uh, rainbows and unicorns and everything's going to be great. But it's, change is hard. Change is always hard. Yeah. People are going to lose. Some people are going to win. But if you're not at the table, at least having input and saying, "Hey, like I'm going to lose my job. My family is going to be without income. What are you going to do for me?" then maybe your concerns won't be heard at all. Like we heard some concerns around the table this morning that I had never heard before. Hmm. And those, those concerns will now be relayed to Congressman Simpson and to Senator Merkley and to Senator Wyden, because that's my job is to hear that feedback and help make sure that those interests are represented at the table. When, when we do come to a table to figure this all out. Why should somebody who doesn't live in the Pacific Northwest will never be here this is a global audience, right? right? These shows are downloaded in 120 countries. Why should somebody live lives end, James. someplace else care? If, so it's I think if a few baby fish die when they go over concrete walls. We were talking about that on the way up here, and I think John and I were the, the closest analogy. I think for an environmental campaign, quote unquote, environmental conservation campaign, whatever you want to call it, is the pebble mine. Okay. You know, you could walk into any fly shop in the United States and find a no pebble sticker on the cash register. You know, right. it was and, a, and they couldn't find Bristol Bay on the map. Right. Maybe. But it you know, it is the beating heart of Alaskan salmon. Yep. And we're talking the same thing in the Snake Basin. This is the beating heart of the lower forty eight salmon and steelhead. So if you care about I mean, I'll probably never go to Alaska and I gotta well, I'm going to Alaska this summer, but I'll probably never go to Bristol Bay. <laughs> <laughs> Crappy example. Uh, I you know, I have I've got no pebble stickers all over my coolers. Yeah. And I'll probably never fish there. Yeah. But it's it's just like that magic of knowing that a place like that exists. And maybe someday I will get to go there. Or maybe my kids will get to go there. Or their kids. They've been having some big runs. Yeah. Let me ask you a, a similar question, James. Yep. Where is the farthest place the Six Ranch has shipped beef? <sighs> it's hard to say since we got into like the, since we started doing cured beef 
you know, we can send that to Australia. Right. I, and I, I understand the point that you're teasing at, and, and it's a good one. But, uh, yeah, all, all over the country. All over the country. All over the country. So why should those people care about Snake River? Because yeah. yep. this is part of it. It's true. Um, and so I, was, so I want to expand, just yeah. make sure people understand. So, like, you know, we, we, we're here in the geography. We're in the Snake Basin. This basin was responsible for, what did Jeff and Kyle say this morning, 30% of all Columbia River salmonids? Uh, no, I think it's double that. The, yeah, so yeah. The grand, 50%. The Grand, the grand, grand Ron is 30%. Yeah. The Grand Ron is 30% of the Snake River of Basin. the snake. And the snake is not quite half of the, the Columbia Basin, same as the yeah. production. Those fish are caught at buoy 10. They're caught, you know, out in the open ocean on a, a non-selective fishery. Like, you could be eating Grand Ron steelhead or salmon. Well, probably not steelhead because you can't really buy it. But Grand Ron Chinook for dinner and not even know it. Sure. So if you like eating salmon and you live in Norway, right, you might be eating Pacific Northwest salmon. And so this has an impact on you. Yeah. The other thing I was thinking about this morning, because a lot of, a lot of the, the early environmental pressure on this was about orcas right we've got some some particular orcas off the oregon coast as you might imagine they're foodies as it turns out what is the deal with that yeah so the resident orcas i'm not an orca expert by any means and there are some people that are very passionate about orcas um, that have made a very big deal about snake river dam removal because your foodie orcas the resident uh southern resident killer whales only eat chinook Unless, yeah. unless things are really dire, maybe they'll eat something else. But And some of them are literally starving to death. Yep. There was the... the Mind-blowing to me. Yeah. Yep. Like, we can teach them to jump through flaming hoops, but uh, they're <laughs> only going to eat this type of fish. <laughs> but, you know, I can't, I can't solve that for them other than to provide more fish. And it's the first time I've ever thought about how supporting a cattle ranch that is doing right by a river is also supporting orca whales. That's wild. How interesting That's is that? Wild. You know, and of course there's a billion species in between here and there, but those are some really charismatic ones. I think you you got a brand there, Orca Safe Beef, I think could take the <laughs> take the industry by storm, Jim. Oh, but I was I used to uh talk about our, our beef in front of groups all the time and I would describe it as uh, salmon friendly and combat free. And combat free beef's not a thing. Uh, but you could see some people like nod along in agreement, like, oh, at last, <laughs> combat-free beef. <laughs> I love That'll all be the $5 labels. $5 extra that, a pound, please. Yeah, I love all the labels that people put on stuff. Yeah. Um, you know, a lot of it's just marketing razzle-dazzle. But, no, I, I kind of felt good about that this morning. And I was like, you know, I've never seen a killer whale um, in the wild. I doubt I ever will. But it's interesting to think about habitat here that's been improved – because of cattle and cattle ranchers that is providing meals for orca whales. That is an amazing thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The world Indeed. is so connected. I like it. Yep. Uh, so we got to come up with what? $30 billion? Between 10 and $30 billion is Between what? Between 10 and $30 billion? Well, so uh, Congressman Simpson and then also uh, Washington Senator Patty Murray and Governor Jay Inslee followed up the Simpson concept paper with a report that kind of dove deeper. And that was their figure was 10, 10, 10 billion to $33 billion to replace the services and take the dams out. Okay. Pocket change. It's a lot of money. Yeah. It's a lot of money. You, can you put a value on living in a place that has salmon and steelhead? Well, I live in a place that only should have them. Right. So how does that feel? I don't know, man. It, It feels good. It feels good, but I it's hard for me to say, yeah, this is worth this is worth ten to thirty billion dollars because of the theory that that if we do this, then you know, a few more percentage points of small will return as right. adults. Yep. Like is is that cost really worth it? And and are we too late? Like by the time we get Congress to act on this, mm-hmm. right? Uh, with a presidential election coming up, right, and then we 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 get the funding, and then we implement it. Is it going to be too late? And then did we cause other problems throughout the process? Mm-hmm. Uh, they're real questions. Yeah. One of the things that I think about 
within considering that is, let's just say, worst case scenario, it is too late for salmon and steelhead in, in this basin. Um, for the fish that have to cross those four lower snake dams, let's just say it's too late for them. That despite our best efforts and the most rapid uh, course of action that we could take, that, that they're going to go away. Maybe it's not too late for another species, mm-hmm. right? Well, and I think, you know, the other, the human component of that, James, is like we're looking for investments in infrastructure that leave us better regardless of salmon. Yeah. You know, we've got climate change screwing things up with, with lower flows in the summer and higher flows in the winter. The dams are becoming less and less of a, you know, a valuable energy source because of the time of their, their max production is off from when demand is highest, when people run their air conditioners or their heaters. Right. So, you know, barging is, is falling in this, in this snake reach. Like it's, it's declined over the years. Um, it's just becoming a less viable transportation option. And why don't we invest in really high quality future forward thinking rail infrastructure and road infrastructure that leaves us better as a region. Let's develop energy systems that also do the same that ensure like a, you know, a more, um, predictable utility rate that keeps things low for future generations. Yeah. You know, BPA, uh, they're, they're coming into negotiations with all of their rate payers. What is BPA? The Bonneville Power Administration. So that's the quasi-federal entity that markets the power generated by the Columbia System dams. What is quasi-federal? So they're not a federal agency, but they're, you know, they're the, they're the power marketer for the federal agency. Okay. And so, they're federally funded. Right. So like Army Corps of Engineers owns the dams. BPA essentially owns the energy. Pretty much, yeah, and all the transmission for the energy. Yeah. Yep. So where we so, are, where we are right here, um, is about uh, about four hundred yards from the closest power lines. It cost me thirty thousand dollars to get power four hundred yards to wow. here. We have cheap energy here, and I'm grateful for that. Even though. While our energy, like what's turning these lights on inside the studio right now, should be hydro, there's a good chance it's coal because we're exporting our hydro energy all the way to California. But for the convenience of light and electricity and power, it is tremendously expensive to move it around. Tremendously expensive. Uh, it, it, this has made me appreciate electricity like few other times in my life because... Now I understand a little snippet about the expense and labor it takes to move it. You're talking about those locks costing how much to maintain every year? It's hard to pin down a number, but it's somewhere the operations and maintenance of the dams is somewhere between a hundred and $300 million a year. Wow. And that just depends on your accounting and you know, the federal government's not. Is that spread through four dams? Yes. That's the cost of the snake system. Yeah. Besides sending wheat out, what other transport is going on on the river? Uh, it's primarily wheat out and then, uh, you know, fuel and um, and fertilizer coming up. Gotcha. But a lot of empty barges. You know, if you drive along the Columbia, you can tell by looking at a barge, whether it's loaded down, by how much freeboard there is. And there's, you know, you see a lot of empty barges coming up river. So, yeah, so those are the primary products coming up river. Uh, mostly white winter wheat going out. And it's actually, you know, the, the uh, use of that winter wheat, it's going overseas to make ramen noodles in Japan and in China. Ramen so noodles? Ramen noodles. I'm White a fan. wheat. Yeah, I am too. Yeah. I wish they could grow it somewhere else, but <laughs> no, no. It's a valuable industry and it provides, you know, a robust economy for the Palouse. So. And the Palouse is a special place. Talk to me a little bit about what the Palouse is. Yeah, it's a very, I mean, I, I, I went, so I went to college at Washington State. I grew up in Spokane, uh, you know, care a lot about Eastern Washington. I should know more about the geomorphology of the Palouse. But it's basically, you know, it's the hills between Spokane and Pullman and a little bit further south that are just rolling, highly productive topsoil um, that is, you know, the epicenter of wheat production in, in the United States. And very little of it is irrigated. Right. It's all dryland wheat. Yep. yep. So all the irrigation is coming out of Sacagawea Pool at Ice Harbor. Um, and that's primarily for wineries and for fruit crops and for other, you know, center pivot agriculture. So how does the wine industry feel about this? Uh, I think, you know, there's, there's, I, I think the entire campaign I think of as a bell curve where there's people in the tails of the curve that are passionate on one side or the other. And then there's a whole lot of people in the middle that either don't have enough information or don't care or, you know, just haven't made up their minds yet. And I think the wine industry is probably in a similar place. 
And uh, who owns that? Who owns the wineries? No, the the areas that are being irrigated. Yeah, so we we talked a little bit about that this morning. It's you know while it's it's romantic to think of it as family farms, it's the primary um, irrigators in the Lower Snake are about nine or ten landowners, and I think twenty seven well users that would have to have their wells deepened or their pumps extended. So it's not a whole lot of irrigators in the lower river. And then who owns that? Uh, a variety of corporate commercial farms. Uh, actually, the Church of Latter-day Saints of, uh, is a, a majority landowner down there. So the Mormons are making wine? Uh, no, they're growing other crops. Okay. Yeah. All yeah. right. Yeah. I don't um, think they're making wine. <laughs> they could be growing the grapes. Could be growing the grapes. But what happens with the grapes stays yeah. with the grapes. Yeah. 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 That's but fun. you know, just good, good hardworking people that need to need to be part of the solution. And I think that's what we're trying to do with American rivers and with Eric Crawford from Trout Unlimited who couldn't be here today, but having those conversations, sometimes really hard conversations to figure out what people's concerns are and find solutions to them instead of just saying, you know, orcas are dying and salmon are dying and we need to save them. Like let's come together as a community and figure this out together is the, the approach that we're taking. It's just urgent. It feels urgent to me. Yeah. Yeah. 65% of all the salmon and steelhead habitat in the lower 48 states by 2080. By the time we've got, you know, grandkids running around. By 2080, what? What happens in 2080? That It'll be, so right now it's like, uh, I don't know the stat right now. It's 40%, I want to say, of, of salmon and steelhead habitat in the lower 48. But as climate gets warmer, water gets warmer, mm. all the habitat in, will be in these high protected areas, the Frank Church and you know, other areas in the Snake Basin, high elevation, cold, clean water. It's the only place that salmon and steelhead will be able to persist. Gotcha. That's interesting being so far inland because, I mean, we're pretty much the Snake River drainage is the most inland right. um, salmon and steelhead habitat in yeah. North America right now. Yeah, yeah, snakes and salmon. And... uh 900 miles and 6,000 feet these fish traverse to get home to Stanley. Yeah. I mean, they're literally Olympic athletes, and we're making them breathe through a straw. Hmm. Yeah, the water temp thing was a big one. And as we talk about, like, not dam removal, but, you know, dam replacement on Wallowa Lake, which Wallowa Lake's 300 feet deep. The dam's holding back 17 feet of water or something. It's not much. But it need it's got a crack in it. It could hold back some more and provide some more acre feet um, of storage for irrigation. It's very cold water. Uh, it's you know almost sterile. It's so cold. It's drinkable water. As that dam gets fixed, we're going to have to allow for fish passage, and the fish that would be using that are sockeye or or red salmon. The problem, the problem with this that I see is that sockeye need to be coming up the Columbia River in August. And those water temperatures right now are lethal. Right. They're lethal. So yep. it's not it's not field of dreams. It's not like, oh, we put in a fish ladder, now we can have a sockeye run. It's like, no, they'll die. They'll mm-hmm. die hundreds of miles before they even get here. And that, that does happen. That has happened. There's historic precedent for really hot years. But what they're doing, so EPA has done some fascinating work, uh, the, the lab out of, or the EPA office out of Corvallis, actually, some of the folks down there that I live with, um, y- you can think of an adult salmon coming back as a battery. Like it has a certain, you know, they don't eat when they get back into freshwater. So they've got fat stores to get them home. And so the warmer the water, the more energy they expend right. coming upstream. And if it's too hot, yeah, they're not going to make it. Yeah. But what they're doing, what, what EPA has done through telemetry studies and pit tagging has found that they're zigzagging up the river using cold water refugia of tributaries right. like the Deschutes and the John Day, like where all, the, all those tributaries are coming in. They're where you see 700 boats in a one exactly, acre area, just right? clubbing them to death. Just yeah, yeah, racking on them. And so that's how they're making their journey home. They're they're pinballing back and forth, right, up the Columbia, up the mouths of tributaries. Yeah. So that's where the yeoman's work is done. Is you know why watershed restoration, what you guys are doing on your on your ranch is so important, is because getting that water out of the Wallawa into the Grand Ronde, into the Snake, into the Columbia, every little drop counts. And the colder we can keep it by improved riparian areas and, you know, other cooling restoration work. Typically, water warms as it goes downstream, just as a rule. You know, this project we did here, and I'm bragging right now, was so effective that 
the water is warmer above us than it is below us. Yeah. We cool it off in two and a half miles. Exactly. Measurably. Hyperreic flow going through gravel and through log structures and and being in the shade. Making it deeper, slower, shadier, um, you know, creating pool, riffle, run, and glide in, in succession and in different ways. You know, it's an amazing thing. And in the years past, it were really, really warm that, you know, we had to, you know, use hoot owl and shut down fishing in the afternoon. They actually shut it down at the border of the ranch because we were cold enough up here that we could fish all day long without wow. hurting the fish. But be- but below it, it warmed up again and you couldn't. Right. So projects like this, they make a, a real world measurable difference. Mm-hmm. So, so does it, so does a dam because the dam, you know, the yeah, reservoir behind a dam exactly. is like a big bathtub sitting in the sun. That's not all a spreadsheet. Year. It's not a Ted talk. It's a physical thing that you've done to improve the quality of habitat and the odds that a fish survives. Mm-hmm. Exactly. So what are the temps behind, let's say ice Harbor? Well, it fluctuates throughout the year. And the, right. this is, I'm out over my skis a little bit. Eric, yeah. if you have Eric Crawford come in, he's really good at, at temperature. The, the water coming into, um, out of Hell's Canyon is, can be pretty warm. Right. So I, I'm talking, the fish are coming back in. It's August, September, about the time. That's about the time that the fish are coming up. 70s. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's in the 70s. Right. Yep. And steelhead prefer low 50s and, and lower, right? Anything up to 70, you know, 70 and above is lethal. Yeah. 65 to 70 is sublethal. Yeah. Right. So there's how many fish are dying just from the hot water. Yeah. And... I don't know. A few. A few, at least. But it would be colder uh, without four dams slowing that water down. Exactly. Yeah. That was kind of the point that I was getting to is like, if we can have a free-flowing river, the water will definitely cool down. There's got to be just a huge amount of sediment and sludge that's built up. Probably a lot of it toxic, um, heavy metals. Like, you know, once we kick these things loose how long is it going to take them to clear up are they going to flow mud for 100 years well i think you know we've got some interesting proxies to look at like elwa dams in in washington tell me about that one i i'm again out over my skis a little bit but uh glans canyon and i don't recall the name of the other dam that came out uh about 10 years ago now yeah it was 2015 sticks in my mind but uh so those dams came out and they recovered way faster all that sediment behind those dams got flushed out within a year or two yeah and really within hours it was flowing clear right and some of the engineers thought that it would be muddy for a long long time yeah and so we, you know a similar proxy happening now is the klamath dams coming out and i don't know much about that neither do i um be interesting to have somebody on that does but you know we'll be certainly looking closely at at the success of that project because you know you take dams out and the thought is if you build it they will come and we'll see if that yeah. if that bears fruit but all well, signs point to yes all signs point to yes and a lot of However, playing devil's advocate, a lot of that is done on one dam rivers that are pretty close to the ocean, not fifth, sixth, seventh, and eighth dam that the fish have to cross coming back up. Yeah. So it is different. We're way more inland than what the Elwha is for sure, the Carmel River Dam in California, or even the Klamath. But you said earlier... Um, the gentleman from the Nez Perce tribe, we've turned all the dials. We've done this. Shannon Wheeler. Of, yeah, Vice Chair Wheeler. We've looked at habitat restoration. We can't do anything about ocean conditions. Putting tons of fish into the system through hatcheries has helped to some degree keep fish in the river, keep recreation going, but it hasn't fixed the problem. Right. This might be the last thing. It is. Right. Without a doubt. You know, this is our last lever to pull. Okay. So if, if somebody's listening and they're like, man, I would love for there to be salmon and steelhead in the future. You know, they think that, that this is a good idea. They want to take a little bit of action. Mm -hmm. Uh, are they reaching out to you guys? Are they reaching out to Congressman Bentz? All the above. Yeah. I mean, I, I, you know, I'd welcome folks to take a look at, uh, American Rivers website to learn more. Uh, you can sign up for our listserv. We'll, we'll, we'll be sending, you know, updates throughout the campaign. Trout Unlimited, uh, I think it's tu.org slash lower snake. They've got great info. Um, and, you know, it really, it's going to take an act of Congress to make the dams deauthorized. So if you do, you know, if you live in Oregon or Washington or Idaho, 
um, it's pretty easy to figure out who your uh, local elector or your federally elected officials are and either call their office or... Well, and Congressman Bentz sits on a natural resources... Subcommittee, yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> he's so, the chair. Yeah, he's he's in a good good place to actually do something with it. So what we'll also do is, if you look in that podcast description, um, you're going to see his email. And it's easy enough to just click on that and say, hey, I know I would like to support or not support the removal of the lower snake dams, or I've got questions about it. Um, you know, just start the conversation. If, if you feel like, you know, if you feel anything about this, then uh, it's going to take you about 45 seconds to click on that and write a quick email. Congressman Benz has some really, really wonderful aides that, uh, that are very responsive that read these emails. You know, I don't, don't agree with uh with everything that that he does and i don't agree with everything that anybody does but i i do know that this information gets to him um which i cannot say about a lot of politicians so uh that'll be easy enough if you feel like this um if you feel anything about this you can take some action there and then if you have any questions for these two gentlemen how do they get a hold of you uh you can send me an email ksmith at americanrivers.org okay um, alpinearcheryandfly.com is our website. Yep. Um, and there's a contact form on there. Yep. And it's, uh, our email address is alpinearcheryllc at gmail.com. Um, that's really about it. So you can get a conservationist perspective. You can get, um, you know, John, your perspective is very much that of a conservationist, but it's also of, of somebody who's affected from an economic perspective as well and you know i can always trust you to be honest about that which i appreciate uh yeah i i don't know i hope i hope we're not too late but i think that every time i felt like and this goes into hunting and a lot of different scenarios business even this podcast like i've often felt like oh i'm too late i should have gotten started sooner but every time that I've gone ahead and gotten started and gotten after it, I'm not too late. Right. And I think that that's probably the situation we're in right now where you can, you can hear, you can feel that clock ticking, but it is certainly not too late. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, they're incredibly resilient animals. Yeah. If we just can figure out ways, the more we can get out of their way and let them do their thing. Right. The better off they're going to be. And ultimately the better off we're going to be too, I think. Yeah, I think so. Okay. Any closing thoughts, gentlemen? Appreciate your time, James. Thanks for having us on. Appreciate you guys coming out. Yeah. Coming over to Eastern Oregon, saying hello. Trying to drag my wife over here. We'll see. We'll see if I'm successful. Yeah, I don't make it to Eastern Oregon enough. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, John lives like, I don't know, 40 air miles west of me. But I can see Idaho when I wake up in the morning. So it's not Eastern Oregon until you cross over the Minum. Uh, it's just too bad it's unlivable here in the wintertime. Otherwise, it'd be pretty special. So, all right. Well, thank you, gentlemen, both very much. And uh, I hope that people will reach out to you with questions. I hope they'll do research on their own. And uh, if they want to take action, I hope they'll take a minute and send uh, Congressman Bentz a quick little note, quick little email. Easy enough. Thank you, gents. About a decade ago, I launched my old aluminum drift boat onto a remote whitewater river and floated for a couple sunny spring days to meet some friends who were bear hunting downstream. While I made them dinner that evening, one of my buddies came over and showed me a SIG rangefinder. I'd heard of the company and I'd seen their gear while I was a marine, but this was the first time I'd seen one of their products built for hunters. The range popped up instantly, and it continued to range everything I put the reticle on as I scanned across the canyon. I'd never seen anything like it on the civilian market, and frankly, not on the military one either. Since that day, SIG has come out with a long list of high-quality and innovative products for hunters, as well as continuing the same for military, law enforcement, and responsible citizens. They have some great training facilities located around the country too. Check out all that SIG has to offer on their website, SIGSour.com. And this episode of the podcast is brought to you by SIG. 
Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe and share the show with a friend. You can also rate the podcast and leave a review. Your support allows me to keep doing what I love, which is meeting incredible folks and sharing their stories with you. For more content and photos, follow the show on Instagram at Six Ranch Podcast or me at Six Ranch Outfitters. This episode was produced by Emily Brannigan with original music written and performed by Justin Hay. Art for the Six Ranch Podcast was created by John Chatelain and digitized by Celia Christofferson. Tune in every Monday for a brand new episode of the Six Ranch Podcast. I'll catch you next week.